Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, January the 15th, 2024. MLK Day in the United States, a celebration of the great man, Dr. Martin Luther King, a man who prove the idea or ideal, or at least some people believe the ideal of not just of human agency, of the idea of the arc of history bending towards justice, but bending towards us shaping our lives as we want them. Very American idea, not just for MLK himself, uh, but for the people he represented in his short but tumultuous political life. Interestingly enough, the first show we did today was with the American uh, political scientist, um, Brian Klass, who has a new book out called Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters, which suggests that nothing really matters, that we don't really shape our own history, that we can't determine it. Rather appropriate book or inappropriate book for MLK Day. And we're moving on to a very different kind of book, Where You End, by my guest, um, Abbott Kaler, a novel by a very distinguished nonfiction writer. Uh, many of you will be familiar with uh, Abbott um, Kaler, who was known as Karen Abbott, uh, author of many books, including The Ghosts of Eden Park. This new book, which has been acclaimed by many people, is out tomorrow, Where You End a book which, in an odd way, might be an appropriate uh, discussion for MLK Day. Um, Abbott Kaler is joining us from Greenpoint in New York, out on Long Island. Uh, Abbott, is this book uh, where you end? Is it written in the spirit of MLK, that we all have agency? It seems to touch on a lot of the the, the third rails of American culture. Well, it certainly is a, a distinct snapshot, I think, of a very particular time in American culture, uh, the 1970s, um, when there was this great um, human potential movement that sprung up in the wake of the 1960s um, and kind of, I think, was a little bit of an answer to the 60s, uh, the chaos, the drugs, the Charlie Manson, um, all of that uh, sort of uh, upheaval. Um, was being streamlined in the 70s and this idea that we are all improvable, we should all work toward that. Um, and uh, it was more corporate in tone, I think, than the 1960s, um, which of course then even accelerated into the 80s. But but it is a very particular snapshot of this period in, in American history after MLK, of course, had sadly been assassinated. Um, and, uh, and, and sort of, um, you know, just the idea that we all are works of in progress. And uh, there were various creepy and unsettling ways that people attempted to improve themselves in this time period. So if we all, all are works of progress, you introduce, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, a trope into your novel, uh, twin sisters. Uh, because that's an appropriate, a perfect way to explore and perhaps satirize the idea of agency. Tell me about the twin sisters at the heart, if there is indeed a heart of where you end. Maybe there isn't really much of a heart. 
Well, I would I would say there's a heart. And, and first of all, I should say that um, this book is inspired by true events. Um, in 2019, I watched a really fascinating documentary called Tell Me Who I Am. It was about British identical twins, um, Alex and Marcus Lewis. Um, Alex, when he was 18, suffered a traumatic brain injury. And when he awakened from his coma, the only memories he had were of his identical twins' face and name. He didn't remember any of their memories, their history, um, no other family members, no friends, nothing. And so he depended on um, Marcus to fill in the blanks of his history and identity. Um, but in this tragedy, Marcus saw an opportunity and he decided to give Alex different memories. He invented memories that were idyllic, um, sort of the memories he wished that they had experienced in, in, in real life. Um, and I began thinking about this phenomenal situation, um, really, you know, stranger than fiction, and applied it to my own family. My mom is an identical twin. Uh, they are very close. Uh, they're actually mirror twins, which is this rare phenomenon when the embryo splits later than usual. Uh, my mom parted her hair on one side. My aunt parted her hair on the other side. My mom was right-handed. My aunt was left. And, and looking at each other was really just akin to looking in a mirror. And I began to wonder what they would do in this situation. And... Um, you know, I think it's a question that we would all grapple with if found in this in this very odd uh, predicament. You know, uh, how it is giving the gift of a different life a betrayal or is it a gift? Um, is it something that that um, is going to lead them further astray and maybe bring danger back into their lives? Or is it is is it going to lead to some kind of redemption um, that would be beneficial in the end? It's uh, a book very much in the gray zone between fiction and nonfiction, as all your work is, and as you are. You were once Karen Abbott, now you're Abbott Kayla. <laughs> this idea of the twin, you said your mother um, was, a, was a twin. Are, are there two Kaylas? Is there an Abbott and a Karen, or are they always together? <laughs> well, that's, that's, always, that's also an equally creepy story. Um, I changed my name back in 2014, actually, so it's been about 10 years. But I had gotten an, an email from a reader who said, do you know that if you Google yourself, it says that you died in 2010? Um, I did not know this. Uh, sure enough, I Google myself, um, which I never do. But there was my picture, there was my alma mater, and there was died 2010. And uh, it where was, was very... Where was it? Where was this on? <laughs> On Google, like if you Googled it, it was the result that came up that said, I, you know, right on the, you know, when you Google something and the, the picture right. pops up on the right hand side. Yeah. It, um, but what it says was I the website? I mean, you can Google, like you, you, you know, but Google type... doesn't have a website, it just has links. Yeah. So, but if you typed my name into Google, it came up as a result, like the first result on the okay, right side. Yeah. Just as you type MLK and you get. MLK yeah, exactly. K. But what, what, what was, what, what website said you died? What was the it link to? Just, it was just li li like Wikipedia, Google. I mean, it was just the link on Google. To Wikipedia? I mean, I could upload the photo for you. I don't know how to explain it. You, you typed in Google and it's sort of the Google result. It was a result listed on Google. No, no I understand that, but I'm just curious what the website was. I don't. I mean, all I know it was and on so the And so you saw this and you decided to change your name. I was in the midst of writing fiction um, at the time and thought that, uh, you know, it might be a good idea to change my name to distinguish from the nonfiction. And also I was turning 40. So I was having a bit of a midlife crisis and thought, why not? And ended up, you know, just going through with it and going to the courts in New York and uh, changing my name. Yeah. Where, uh, 
uh, Abbott, with so many people in 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 ourselves, you're both Abbott and Karen. Uh, you're Abbott Kayla as well as Karen Abbott. We all have different pieces, different histories, different legacies. Um, are we all, in a sense, twins, even if we don't formally have twins? I think that's a very interesting question, and it does play into a long-standing tradition of a twin trope in literature. I mean, you go back to Edgar Allan Poe. Um, he was sort of obsessed with the idea of the doppelganger, you know, the sort of secret shadowy self that sits right, right on your shoulder, right near you, that might is often a harbinger of death or doom. Um, Freud wrote about this constantly. Uh, he, he has a famous essay uh, called The Uncanny, where he talks about uh, the idea of the of the doppelganger. And it always was a, an ominous presence. Um, and I wanted to play around with that a bit. And the idea of, is Jude, you know, the, the twins in the book are Cat and Jude. It was Jude an ominous presence to her twin, um, you know, filling in the ideas of, of what happened in their history that weren't necessarily all true, or is she somebody that's um, uh, going to be a, a, a benevolent presence. And I wanted that to be a question for a while in the book. We are speaking with Abbott Kaler, the author of Where You End, a, a novel that's already been acclaimed. It's um, got starred by uh, Publishers Weekly. They put it on the cover of their magazine. Um, it's already been uh, best books uh, on... Um, uh, on uh, uh, all over X and uh, oh, that's on people. Yeah, that's, that's People, people. Magazine and then uh, Book Page. So you're everywhere, Karen. Um, oh, well. Uh, and I called you, Karen. That was a, that was a, I don't even know if you should even be using the term Freudian error on such a Freudian. It's uh, <laughs> okay. Karen Freudian is my shadow self. Karen's my shadow self, <laughs> the dark passenger. So, um, Coming back to the, the the book that's been so acclaimed, um, come back to, in all seriousness, this shift. This is your first novel. You you've you've made a name, or you made a name for yourself with a different name as um, in all this nonfiction. Did you see a, a a shift as a writer, or is it basically doing the same sort of stuff? No, it was entirely different. Um, and it was a, a quite an interesting change, you know, in um, nonfiction in many ways, I was surprised to find it's much easier than fiction. Um, you know, wow, not... that's a that's a, a radical thing to say. You're gonna have a lot of nonfiction <laughs> writers putting putting your obituary up on Google now. <laughs> well, I mean, I invite them all to try to write a novel then. Um, but you know, you can't write bad dialogue in nonfiction. The dialogue is there, perfect in the historical record. You can't make a wrong unless you make it up, but then I guess it's not nonfiction. No, and it's not nonfiction. We don't we don't make up dialogue in nonfiction. So it's impossible to write bad dialogue. Um, it's impossible to take a wrong turn with your plot. You know, the plot is already there, written in history. Um, you just have to record the story. You're not really inventing the story. Um, you know, chronology can be a problem. You uh, world dates and events are annoyingly immovable. You can't switch things around. Um, but in fiction, you know, it's it's thrillingly liberating, but it's also, you know, so many ways you can go wrong. Of course, bad dialogue, bad plot turns, um, you know, just a variety of ways that the human, you know, brain is not <laughs> writing the best story that it could write in a way that, you know, history has already written the, the perfect story in many ways, um, which is why I preferred nonfiction for a very long time. Uh, but I, uh, you know, I try to apply a lot of nonfiction you know, 
I guess, tricks that I use to fiction in terms of outlining. You know, I'm a prolific outliner for my nonfiction books. They're often, you know, 103, 110,000 words longer than the books themselves. Um, and I try to have a very uh, equally, I guess, detailed outline for my fiction and failed. You know, uh, the characters started talking back to me in ways that my nonfiction characters don't. They had their own voices in their own minds. And eventually I just sort of gave up and, and let them you know, start dictating some of the events of the story in a way, uh, what, you know, the nonfiction characters never do. It's rather like these latest uh, AI products like ChatGPT there, they, they yeah. hallucinate. You're suggesting that your work also hallucinated? Um, if my work hallucinated, I would be very uh, excited by that. <laughs> I think. I'd like to hallucinate along with my work. I think that might lead to something interesting. Coming back to... Um, the the book i did earlier with um brian class fluke um suggests that everything um nothing is inevitable and, and we can't determine anything but of course in fiction you're writing your own history uh, as you suggest um narrative works out exactly as as you want did you feel more powerful as a writer in that sense that you could determine the exact narrative you wanted in contrast to your nonfiction works? Uh, it was, uh, I guess, a sense of power in terms of, um, you know, you know, that, you know, and I guess in nonfiction, as I said, the dead people don't do what you want them to do, you know, in, in this, in, in writing fiction, they're invented people and they can do exactly what you want them to do. You know, I questioned myself along the way of whether they were doing the correct thing. Um, and, and many times I went back into the narrative and thought, you know, this doesn't sound like this character. This really isn't fitting um, for what the, the personality that they've established as I've been going along writing. And I, I went back and changed quite a few scenes after I thought about them a bit um, and just you know, the characters are fiction, but you try to make them as true to life as possible. You, you know, you want a character that somebody's going to relate to um, and might even recognize in, in some way in their own life. Uh, you've also got an upcoming book, uh, uh, forthcoming, uh, then, then Came the Devil, about a, yeah. uh, a nonfiction book about a, a 1930s utopian community in the, uh, in, in the Galapagos. I mean, that's an, a remarkable story in itself. Can fiction ever beat nonfiction? You always hear these stories. People say, well, you couldn't make this sort of stuff up, which yeah. is a challenge to fiction writers because <laughs> when they make stuff up, often it seems more believable than incredible nonfiction, true stories. I agree with you. Um, I, you know, if I did try to write the Galapagos story as fiction, I'm sure an editor rightly would have said, no, <laughs> this is incredibly far-fetched. Um, I can't let you get away with it. This is, you know, start over. Um, I always think the truth is stranger than fiction. Um, and in this book, Then Came the Devil is no exception. It, it tells the, you know, true story of a group of Germans who fled Germany in the years leading up to World War II when Germany was sort of uh, starting to feel the chaos and unrest. Um, of that time period and tried to build this utopia, which, you know, utopias often more than not go awry, horribly awry. And this sort of turned into, you know, adult Lord of the Flies um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, lots of mysterious deaths and disappearances. And uh, I really had a lot of fun with this one. And and um, I don't think I'm going to find another nonfiction to, to top it. And so that's, <laughs> that's worrisome. So I guess it's, you know, for right now, I'm just thinking I have to stick to fiction because I, I just can't find anything else like that. 
anyone watching this will note that uh, Abbott Kayla's background is a is a deep red, <laughs> if that's the right word, a gothic background. You've been described as a gothic writer, or certainly where you end as a a modern day gothic novel. Do you think of yourself uh, with that word gothic? There seems something gothic about a lot of your work. Well, I really appreciate that. Um, I had, you know, in the past, usually applied Gothic to Southern literature more than, you know, Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor and, and those people. But, um, you know, I, I I think Gothic elements, um, there are some in my work and I, I really, you know, I guess am drawn to that. Um, of course, Poe was a Gothic writer. Poe is one of my favorite writers of all time. And when I was a kid, I would try to rewrite um, Poe stories from somebody else's point of view, you know, fall of the house of Usher. What was Madeline thinking when she was behind all of those bricks? Um, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and um, I've always been drawn to the dark and macabre and I don't see that changing. You know, I can't imagine never writing, you know, ever writing a book where there wasn't a murder, whether it's nonfiction or fiction. We are speaking with Abbott Kayla, the author of Where You End, a massively acclaimed new book. It's out tomorrow. I think it's going to become a bestseller, one of the bestsellers of 2024. I want to remind everyone that high-quality guests like uh, Abbott Kayla are brought to us with the help of Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, very high-quality writing. I think Abbott Kayla would be very much at home uh, in Liberty. It's going to run a short feature on it, and then we'll be back to talk more about Where You End, Abbott Kaler's much-acclaimed new novel. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties. it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Abbott Kayla, um, also known as Karen Abbott. Uh, many of you be familiar with her nonfiction works. Uh, many of them bestsellers, and now she has a new novel out, Where You End, which has been very acclaimed by reviewers. Um, Abbott, you mentioned the visual quality of your work. This seems to be the kind of book that could almost have come out as a movie before being a book. How do you distinguish the visual elements from the literary ones, or do they go together... Uh, Margaret Talbot, the staff writer for The New Yorker, described uh, your work as being reminiscent of David Lynch's Twin Peaks. It's almost as if Lynch wrote the book or, or, or you wrote the book for Lynch. Um, I would love to be involved with David Lynch in any way. I think he's an incredible genius. You'll love your background. That, that red <laughs> is Lynchian in its vividness, <laughs> its bloodiness. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it is. Um, I, you know, I, um, I always think cinematically when I write um, it, I did that with my nonfiction too. I try to be as cinematic as possible. I want people to be, tra I really want people to be transported, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And I think the best way to do that is through scenes. Um, and as whenever I can, whenever it makes sense, I, I do a scene in a book. 
Um, of course, this is more difficult in nonfiction because you have to be dependent on the dialogue that's available in the record and the facts that are available in the record to craft a scene. But I gravitate toward nonfiction stories that allow themselves to be told largely in scene. Um, and I thought about that with fiction too. Um, of course, it's uh, novels are really mostly seen. Um, there is some exposition, of course, but I try to pare that down. And it's very important for me, to, for for uh, the reader, um, to get an idea of what these people look like and and what uh, what milieu they're in and their surroundings. And I want that sense of creepy dread. And I think that only comes from details. You know, I, dread is my absolute favorite emotion. And um, anything I could do to sort of heighten that feeling, um, I, I want to do. Dread, does that mean you want to scare people or is dread and fear they different emotions? I think they're different emotions. I, I think a sense of dread is you're in limbo a little bit. You know, there's a sense of danger is coming, but it's not certain. It might be avoided. It might be thwarted. Unease then. Yeah, unease. I guess unease is a, is a good word for it. Unease. And do you think that brings out our best qualities as readers or viewers, that sense of unease? Does it make us more aware of what we're watching or reading? I think because if, if you're you're put in a constant heightened, heightened state, um, yeah. all of your senses are, you know, pricked, um, you're on alert, uh, you know, you might hear a noise outside and be more scared than you are if you were reading a, a romance or a love story or a fantasy. Um, and I really enjoy that. I, I want every all the senses to be engaged as much as possible. Um, it's and uh, you know I just really be immersed. I don't think you know anybody, you know, could have a better reading experience than to be fully immersed and sort of be almost um, bewildered when the book ends or disoriented. You know, I want you to be a little bit disoriented and not quite sure what, what just happened or where you are or what you just read. Shame we can't bring. Uh the great Alfred Hitchcock back to life. I think he might enjoy the book and make a, a, a very, uh, a very troubling movie out of it. Yeah. Well, I wish, <laughs> I wish that could happen too. I'm a big fan. I, I don't know who it was. Uh, excuse if I get, I, I think it was Faulkner who argued that the past is a foreign country or maybe in Fitzgerald, certainly a famous writer. Yeah. You're writing about the 70s as the late 70s. A lot of people have written about the 70s and have argued in the 2020s we're returning to that. For you, was the 70s in this novel, was this a, a foreign country or was it in some ways similar to the uncertainty of what we're going through in the in the 2020s? Well, I was a little kid in the 70s, so um, I a lot of it I actually had to research as though I had never lived through any of it at all. I was born in 73. So, um, you know, just going back and sort of immersing myself in that time period um, was was a, a little bit of a transportation for me. Um, but I do see the parallels. You know, there is that uncertainty. There is a sense of um, distrust uh, among people and uh, with government. Um, and the book, I should say, also in the early 80s, which uh, was, was its own unique uh, time period. And very, of course, very different from the early '70s, of course, and and um, and I think one that um, is it seems more distant even than the '70s. That that idea that greed is good um, from the early '80s, at least in America, greed was good, um, is not something that's really uh, a popular feeling today. So I, I think we are. Are you? I'm not sure about that. I mean, you're you're quite active on X. X is owned by a man who has made a name following perhaps even 
Yeah, but Ultimate everybody is being everybody hates good. him. <laughs> Nobody really likes him. I mean, he's not a popular figure. You know, X is is uh, declining precipitously. I guess you could say under his watch. Um, and it's likely and that uh, Donald Trump, certainly reasonable chance on. 15th of January 2024, Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee and maybe even the next president. He also seems to be arguing that greed is good. Well, he's a fake populist. You know, he he sort of aligns himself falsely with the, you know, the white middle class here. Um, um, and he's, you know, he's just obviously fraudulent to his core. Um, and he'll, you know, you know, look, he's being taken down in New York as we speak. His empire, such as it is, um, is is in the courts right now and very well could be going down. And he's certainly not popular with, I dare to say, most of the country. You know, he lost the popular vote. It, it seems that another thing that ties the late 70s together with today is, and you come back, you, you talked about wanting to essentially unnerve your your reader, maybe not traumatize them, but unnerve them. <laughs> the late 70s was a time where everyone in America or many people were unnerved. They didn't know what the future was. And it seemed as if everything was falling to pieces. Jimmy Carter, the wars, inflation, and breakdown of traditional institutions. The same seems to be true in the, the 2020s. Do you think that we're living in a particularly unnerving time, which might make unnerving quote-unquote gothic writers like you uh more mainstream you know that's a very good question i i i do think that if i could make one contrast between today and the 70s um there is a level of of supervision especially among children that exists today that never existed in the 1970s i mean we were kids who had no seat belts you know we basically hung ourselves out of car windows. Um, there was no curfew. You know, they actually ran commercials at 10 p.m. every night saying, do you know where your children are? Um, and often, you know, parents had no idea where their children were. The parents and that were so never... drunk watching television that they probably <laughs> forgot they even had children. Exactly. And that that kind of, you know, that doesn't happen today, at least in certain classes in America, you know, you're, you know exactly where your children are at all times and you have to be super vigilant because there's social media and there's phones and there's all kind of um, disturbing things they could be finding online. Um, and I, I think in that sense, with the advance of technology, uh, it certainly is a, a, a lends itself to gothic themes um, because there's so much unknown coming coming new every day. Um, and, and you know what, people really can't be shocked anymore. You know, it's it, at least here, uh, you know, you think that every school shooting would be, would be cause for shock and, and sort of national mourning, but it's, it's almost commonplace now. It's, it's, you know, nothing is, is um, nothing sacred anymore in a way. Yeah, we live in weirdly, shall we say, gothic times. You've written about all these gothic moments in history, both as a fiction and nonfiction writer. Can, how do you write gothically in gothic times, though? Do you have to perhaps pen a, an ungothic narrative? You know, I, it's a good question because I, I'm thinking about my next book idea, and I don't think I'm interested in setting it in the present day. Um, I think that, you know, you could say as much or more about the present day by setting things in the, in the distant past or, or the, you know, not too distant past, like the 70s and 80s. Um, 
today it's it's just too rapidly changing, too um, immediate. Um, and I don't think we know what the lessons are yet of this really sort of disruptive period we're, li we're living in. And I'd, I'd really rather let it sort of percolate a bit and get some distance from it if we ever can get distance from this. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, what the world's going to look like 20 years from now. Um, but I'd really, I, I have no interest in writing anything set in 2024. Uh, Paul Hawkins suggested about the book, a perfectly paced, addictive thriller with a vicious twist. We mentioned Hitchcock, um, uh, David Lynch, uh, being compared with Donna Tartt, another writer who comes to mind is Patricia Highsmith. Is there any My favorite. moral, uh, I, I'm a big fan, any moral message in your work? Do you want people to learn from this or is it just a gothic descent into gothdom? <laughs> Um, you know, a big, a big theme in all of my books, nonfiction and in Where You End, um, is reinvention. I'm fascinated by people's uh, constant uh, sort of propensity and, and interest in reinventing themselves and the ways they go about doing it and how successful the various attempts are. Um, you know, of course, in Where You End, you have uh, one twin literally reinventing the past. Um, and, you know, what does this actually change the person who... Um, her twin is, you know, you know, do lies actually, you know, have a material effect on on a person's psyche? Can you can you change who you are? You know, nature versus nurture. Um, and uh, I, I I'm very interested in reinvention, and uh, I think that that's that's something that we all do, um, even if we're not quite aware that we're doing it. We do it constantly. Perfect message for MLK Day, uh, yeah. a man who invented and reinvented himself. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Fitzgerald, I keep on quoting all these writers, who argued that there are no second acts in American life. Of course, that's a quote that's probably about as wrong as anything <laughs> ever uttered or written. Um, is that really what you're suggesting? Is not just second acts, but third and fourth acts too, particularly in American, not just American life, but perhaps American fiction? Yeah, I, I think that um, America has a long, long storied uh, history of rooting for the underdog um, and second acts. As long as people make the appropriate steps um, that they have to take in order to be welcome to perform a second act, um, it, that's a vital part of the process. If you don't do that, you don't get a second act. Um, but but you know, if you do the proper steps, um, you you do get a second act. Um, and um, now I'm sorry, I forget the the beginning of the question. <laughs> so, uh, what's a bit for you? Finally, uh, Abbott Kaler, formerly known as Karen Abbott, uh, is there a third act? Is there a third name, or are you set now with Abbott? <laughs> no, this is this is pretty much it. This is my second act, um, and I hope I hope I've performed all the steps and and will, you know, be wet, met with some welcome and some enthusiasm with this book. So.